What achievements will we see coming out of the next meeting between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin coming in mid-June? What merit do concerns about Russia's so-called authoritarian measures taken against Navalny, Pivivarov, and others have on the need to rein Putin in? Has the Russian vaccine followed a different path from vaccines available in the United States and Canada? Is America's veering toward a civil war a demonstration of its own inevitable social and fiscal collapse? This week on the Global Research News Hour, just days before the U.S. president heads out to confront the Russian president one on one, we are delighted to present once again the Russian and American author and blogger Dmitry Orlov to comment. In a feature length discussion, he focuses on the Biden Putin issues, the coronavirus dimension, the collapse of America simulating the collapse of the Soviet Union decades ago, and much, much more. On this week's program, the Arctic fox cometh to global research, the dynamics between Russia and America with Dmitry Orlov. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 11th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied in Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The twisted irony is that the CDC is lying about COVID hospitalization trends in order to get children to vaccinate when, in fact, vaccine-related hospitalization are really on the rise today. Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease specialist at UCSF, tallied the data from just one reported serious side effect listed in the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, myocarditis, and found that hospitalization for myocarditis post-vaccination among 12 to 17-year-olds is currently 12 times greater than hospitalization for COVID. Why do our public health experts not find that current trend alarming? It's quite evident that the pandemic in America is over with and it never affected children, even during its peak. However, the pandemic of lies, fear, panic and emotional abuse is continuing indefinitely until Pfizer and Moderna satiate their rapacious appetite for children's blood. That comes from the article, Contagious Lies, CDC Claims Hospitalization Rising Among Unvaccinated Teens, Contrary to Its Own Data by Daniel Horowitz, posted June 9th, originally published in The Blaze. For the sin of being optimistic, Avistland 
was verbally crucified by the government and the medical establishment. Mads Gilbert, the head of the emergency medicine department at the University Hospital of North Norway, accused Avisland of sabotaging the fight against the pandemic. Quote, High-level role conflicts are very destructive. It sparks uncertainty, ambiguity, and confusion. It must be extremely frustrating for the hard-working local health teams to get this type of double communication from the national top management, unquote, Kilbert told NRK. That comes from the article, Norwegian health chief scolded for saying COVID-19 pandemic nearly over by Paul Joseph Watson, posted June 9th, originally published at Summit News. According to one survey, the average American spends 238 minutes a day watching television. If you allow anyone to pump that much propaganda into your mind day after day, it is inevitable that the way that you view the world is going to change. Sadly, a lot of people out there still believe that the big corporate-owned news networks are the, quote, guardians of democracy, unquote, and are just looking out for their best interests. Needless to say, that is not even close to reality. In our day and time, everyone has agendas to push, and the big corporate-owned news networks are not any exception. That comes from the article, Over 90% of the news you see on television is owned and controlled by just five giant corporations. By Michael Snyder, posted June 9th, originally published at End of the American Dream. While these philanthropists can be liberal on some issues, they almost universally support U.S. foreign policy and the free market. Because many of these super-rich individuals made their wealth through investments and speculation, most do not like a planned economy, socialized services beyond the private sector or greater government control. These mega-wealthy individuals and the people who run their foundations are often intimately connected to the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Grants are given to projects, campaigns, and organizations which align with their long-term goals. In this direct way, supposedly independent think tanks and NGOs are influenced, if not controlled. That comes from the article, How Billion-Dollar Foundations Fund NGOs to Manipulate U.S. Foreign Policy, a case study from Nicaragua, by Rick Sterling, post-June 9th, originally published in Covert Action magazine. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is Michael Welch, and the show is the Global Research News Hour, and uh, got a lot of uh, exciting information that uh, we're going to be uh, dealing with right now. Uh, the Russian parliamentary elections are coming up uh, shortly. There's a, a, a meeting between President Biden and the uh, 
President Putin in Geneva. It's the first uh, of their presidency. So we're, we're going to be looking at that and a whole lot of other issues with our next guest. Uh, it's uh, good, been a while since I've had him on the show. His name is Dmitry Orlov. He's an, a Russian-American writer, uh, engineer. He was born in Leningrad. And then he uh, went to the United States in the, in the 70s. He's been through the, um, went back to the Soviet Union and, and studied the collapse, uh, I guess, from the late, late 80s and into the 1990s. Uh, wrote a book about it in the 19, uh, about 2006, 2007. And uh, since then, he's been, he's also been uh, highly uh, experienced with computer science, with the uh, linguistics, and he's also been uh, doing a lot of writing. Uh, in, the, uh, in that uh, a range of issues. It's a, it's a prime geopolitical analyst these days. And so I'm gonna uh, basically give you a chance, Dimitri, to come on and, and, and talk about a lot of these topics. So thank you very much for joining me. Um, thank you for having me on your show. Sure. Well, okay, we've got uh, Biden and we've got uh, Putin. Putin, they're gonna be going into the United States. Putin has you know, got a lot of, at least as far as the mainstream media and Canada, Canada and America are concerned, I mean, he's got a, a lot of uh, tough points going on. I mean, he's, uh, there's a, a lot of, there's the Screeple affair a few years ago. There's uh, this uh, arrest of a, of a journalist at uh, St. Petersburg Airport recently. You've got uh, this Navalny information uh, incidents where this uh, fellow, uh, well, this opposition is, is being held in jail, and uh, the sense that you know there's some protests in, in his favor, and, and so I guess we're wondering. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe you can give us the, the uh, an understanding from your end. What is the sense that uh, Putin uh, is somehow being hammered by Biden, or is going to be hammered as a result? Of situation you know what's what does that scenario look like well my feeling is that if, if biden shows up and recites this litany of nonsense you know the skripal nonsense the russian hacking election nonsense uh, the alexei navalny nonsense the uh the uh actually the it's not a journalist he's he's a, a, a radical um, who was arrested at the Minsk airport, not St. Petersburg, but that's still nonsense. So if, and, and if in general, uh, uh, Biden shows up and uh, tries to press this uh, non-existent human rights uh, agenda or, uh, you know, pro a pro democracy promotion agenda, um, it's a waste of time. Putin is just going basically to, to listen to this and say, okay, well, clearly you are not ready. And uh, well, let's exchange some pleasantries and um, let's skip the, uh, uh, the appearance before the journalists and go home because there's nothing that I wish to discuss with you. You're, you're, not, you're, not, ready to, uh, you're not ready to deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, however, Biden shows up and says, okay, look, um, we've lost. Um, 
We know that our military is useless. We know that our nuclear deterrent is non-functional to a large extent, except for the submarine component. It's pretty much dead. We know that we are basically dead in the water when it comes to your new weapons, and we cannot compete in developing anything similar. We have borrowed our way into oblivion and having nailed the prime rate to the floor at the moment we try lifting it now we're going to have to declare national bankruptcy um what can you do to make this very hard landing a bit softer for us and please go ahead and make whatever demands you want okay that's a good conversation starter so th i think that will that would get putin's attention as far as all of this nonsense that Biden has been spouting, well, Biden doesn't, doesn't do his own thinking, never mind his own speech writing, but he doesn't even do his own thinking. He basically reads from whatever piece of paper some, some aid gives him. And, and these aides have absolutely no understanding of the reality that the United States is in now. They're basically going to recite these stock phrases about Russian meddling or what have you, not realizing that everybody's laughing whenever the United States claims to be a democracy. Everybody basically points finger at the United States when the, the subject of human rights comes up. And that the United States has absolutely no foot to stand on when it comes to any of these issues. Um, that's basically my understanding. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I guess, I mean, that's probably a, a pretty popular view uh, across Russia, I, I guess. Um, and, you know, perhaps a, a lot of the other world, but like within Canada, the United States, Europe, I, I don't know where else. Uh, I guess we're dealing with a kind of a distorted uh, media reality. I mean, uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, how, how uh, the, how Russia and uh, I guess, you know, Know, other regions in the area would uh, view these things where, for example, the, the, the arrest of uh, that, uh, that, that journalist in, uh, in Belarus, uh, you know, they take him from the, the airport that way, um, you know, or, or for that matter, we think- well, What's the issue with that? Please, well, please tell me, what is the issue with that? Why is that the least bit uh, a wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> yeah, well, this was the, like I say, the, it's making a lot of, of news. And this person, uh, he was just, uh, he, was, he was doing some uh, arrangement <clears throat> where he was uh, taken from the airport and they didn't seem to think, that, well, they, they didn't, uh, Belarus, since they've taken this fellow, uh, Belarus is now being, or the uh, Alexander uh, Lushenko is being accused of uh, depriving him of his rights and depriving him as, as, a, as a press person, not necessarily relaying anything about what, I mean, this is, this is something that they're, they're just being brought up a lot. So, um, well, he, uh, he's a Belarusian citizen. He violated Belarusian law. Yeah. And he was apprehended on Belarusian territory. Mm -hmm. um, 
what exactly is wrong with any with any of that yeah and uh who the hell uh, has the right to tell lukashenko what to do in that situation yeah. well yeah i mean I, I guess I mean do, do you see the the problem the people in the West seem to think that they'll get somewhere by talking about these things yeah. well I mean but just, they're just wasting their time because on the other side nobody is listening yeah yeah well yeah, I mean it's that's true I mean it's, it says that he's a, a EU passenger you know and uh, that he was just taken for uh, you know dealing with things but um, but you know, let, let, let's talk a little bit more about this, uh, the fact that there is uh, the, 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 over, the overarching uh, agendas because Biden is, uh, well, he seems to be a little bit more uh, Russophobic than his predecessor. And in fact, I, I don't know of any other pr prime minister going back, I don't know, Reagan? I, going way, way back, I, I don't hear the same level of animosity towards Russia that, uh, th that we're hearing now. And like, why is this going on? Is it just to uh, deflect from something? Or is there a, a, a determination to possibly manifest some kind of a military force or, or other that, uh, or, or, or some kind of military, or, or are they just trying to, sh you know, shed people's attention because I, I don't necessarily see what this uh, uh, over the top you know uh, arguments are all about I mean all, all over these uh, different subjects that are, are, are being shed in front of us screeples the Russiagate and all of the rest of it, it it's clearly all in favor of uh, <coughs> creating you know, division so uh well from the russian point of view it's all about uh comedy um yeah. you know the whole scripal affair is about uh these two fellows who smear a gas on a doorknob after the odor of the house leaves never to come back um the gas is supposed to have been designed to kill thousands of soldiers on a battlefield it's an unstable thing that you get by mixing two chemicals together. And yet these two characters supposedly smuggled it in in a perfume bottle without everybody around them dying. I mean, the, the whole thing is, is just yeah. absolutely preposterous and ridiculous. And the fact that supposedly serious people uh, present this as some kind of uh, serious uh, accusation against Russia without any proof without any evidence whatsoever, uh, basically means that uh, what we're dealing with is, is not geopolitics, but a psychiatric problem. Okay. Um, well, you've got uh, Russia and uh, the, the elections coming up, and it, it seems like uh, they're trying to have some sort of an influence, you know, as, as they actually always do. Uh, um, you know, with their, you know, few little supporters, they typically don't seem to be doing uh, much good these days. But this, uh, I mean, I, I don't see, I mean, they're, they're saying that, uh, I mean, with protests that we hear about lately, and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, certainly among the younger people, they, uh, 
they, they seem to be supporting uh, different forces. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, is, is this is this simply nothing to this, or or is there some sense that, or they think anyway, that they can influence this uh, scenario at all? Well, it, it was uh, sort of a a, a young adult reeducation campaign uh, paid for by uh, um, Western uh, Western. Uh, money sources of various kinds, the State Department, various entities associated with it, George Soros and his various entities and foundations. But basically what they did was uh, took a bunch of uh, immature young Russians for a ride, including some underage ones, convincing them to go out and protest because that's just so radical, you know, to go out there and get arrested and and uh, take selfies in in the van uh, while you're being detained, and then uh, get released into the custody of your parents. That was all a thrill. And then, of course, uh, the entire time uh, the dossiers were being compiled on the people who masterminded all of this, uh, enough to put them away for a really long time on on uh, on on criminal charges. Um, and uh, now these young people uh, basically get a chance to uh, realize the error of their ways, repent, and rejoin the flock. Um, the, the, the really funny thing about it is that uh, all of these people in the West uh, kept repeating as some kind of a, a mantra uh, that Alexei Navalny is an opposition leader. Now, he's a felon. He's a convicted felon for economic crimes, not political ones, fraud and embezzlement. Someone who has been convicted of fraud and embezzlement cannot run for office in Russia. So saying that he's a politician is ridiculous. Um, what kind of an opposition politician that would be is irrelevant because he's not a politician. So saying he is a politician is as, as stupid as saying that this fellow who was apprehended in Minsk is as a journalist. He's not a journalist. He's, uh, he's a terrorist. He, he was uh, part of a neo-Nazi organization that was involved in killing civilians. Mm -hmm. wow. So repeating something that is manifestly incorrect and hoping that nobody notices, and then bringing it up at high-level meetings is not really a good idea. It, it is not indicative of a sound mind. When we look at the, uh, the situation that Russia is facing, you're seeing the United States and NATO kind of moving closer and, and closer uh, to Russia's actual borders, uh, which is something that they supposedly said they wouldn't do uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and that. But they're, they're seeing all of this activity on the uh, right on the border with uh, Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine. You're seeing all of these war games exercises nearby and uh, massive buildups on the part of, of Russia uh, to, to kind of, you know, stem against that. Um, 
what is, I mean, NATO seems to be trying to provoke something. Uh, what, what, what is the game here for, for, for Russia and, and, and what exactly are, are the United States uh, going to get out? If they can't necessarily follow through with it in any way, because it's, I mean, the idea of going at it with Russia seems to be kind of, uh, I don't know, probably the latest uh, fail, but what would you say is, is are, are they forcing, uh, if, if not a war? Well, NATO, uh, the last time it was actually involved in, in any sort of a serious conflict was in Afghanistan, and that was a disaster. Uh, shelling Serbia uh, doesn't really count. Um, it wasn't so much involved as NATO in Libya. It was mostly, you know, the French and, and the Americans bombing from the air. Um, and, and so it is un absolutely unclear whether NATO is capable of any sort of military action at all. Uh, these uh, training exercises that they've done have shown that uh, in, um, in any sort of a conflict with Russia, it is basically a matter of a couple of days before they have to surrender. Um, on the other hand, Russia probably has the most functional and well-equipped, well-armed military on the planet right now with the most advanced weapons and the best discipline. And uh, the, um, the training exercise that they carried out in Crimea most recently, I think should be enough to, to scare NATO into just absolutely abandoning any hope of standing up to Russia. Because what they did was they staged both sides of the Normandy invasion. They, they were both the, the invading the landing force and the force defending the shoreline. And they did both jobs separately, just basically to show that A, Russia isn't going to be invaded from the sea, and B, Russia is going to invade anybody it wants from the sea, anywhere in the world. So um, not that Russia is planning to do any of this. This is all to convince NATO and others, although others don't really require a lot of convincing, that, um, that doing anything other than pursuing friendly relations, cordial, uh, amicable relations with Russia is a really, really terrible idea. Now, uh, again, you have uh, this entire organization, this entire NATO organization, which is all about basically cutting up money, cutting up and stuffing it in people's pockets. Um, it's not about fighting wars, clearly. Um, and, and so the, the longer they can keep the pretense that they're actually uh, you know, uh, opposing an implacable enemy with all their might, that sort of thing. Um, it's basically a, a theatrical suspension of disbelief that they're going for, not any sort of uh, serious military posture. And I think at this point, everybody serious knows that. Yeah. Well, I guess there's the whole idea of the United States is, you know, you, as you get closer and closer to Russia, you're trying to attract people over in Ukraine and uh, you know, other different areas, whatever, uh, you know, bringing those allies closer or trying to get them over to the NATO side, that would uh, 
um, that could impact Russia in a, in a negative way, could it not? No, uh, there's, there's Russia, and then there, there's no man's land outside of Russia between the West and Russia. And the snowman's land doesn't really matter at all because we're not in an age where um, tank armies take over ground. We're in an age where if somebody attacks Russia, that somebody gets destroyed in their home office a few minutes later. So it doesn't matter how close they get to the Russian border. Of course, if they cross the border, they get killed. They know that. So they won't, they will never do that. If they, attack across the border with any other method. It's their headquarters that are going to get blown up. And those giving orders know that. So there won't be any sort of action like that happening. That has been made very clear. The rules of engagement has been, have been laid down. So what all of this is, is basically uh, summer picnics for the, for the NATO troops in whatever little country that wants to host them that has nothing better to do. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You just joined us. We're li- you were listening to a uh, Global Research News Hour and a conversation with Russian American author and blogger uh, Dmitry Orlov. Uh, he's got a website at uh, cluborlov.blogspot.com. Dimitri, let's let's back up and, and talk about a, a, another major story of, of our time right now, the, the COVID-19 or the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And I mean, this is spread really now throughout the world. And you, you, we've seen in, in Canada, the United States and, and the Western Europe, I mean, it's it's so horrible that they're, you know, locking down whole communities where uh, we're all being influenced to take the, to mask and uh, take the vaccine. And, uh, you know, I know that the, the West is, uh, you know, particularly they have a, a vaccine based on the messenger RNA, a, a new thing that actually it's never been tried before. Uh, but Russia also had a vaccine, which uh, was significantly different, but still also came out immediately. Um, so I, I, what I'd like to get is a sense of how are the Russian people addressing this uh, this virus versus the rest of us? Has society been closed down uh, entirely, or are they maybe yeah? Or are they just dealing with it a little bit differently? What what's your take? Well, um, every year one percent of the population of the Earth dies. Uh, the coronavirus has been responsible for increasing that by about 12%. So instead of 1%, it's 1.12% or thereabouts. So it's significant, but you, you can't really say that it's totally in the noise. On the other hand, it, it's really no worse than a bad flu season. Um, the interesting thing about this virus is not the virus itself, but the reaction to it. Uh, these lockdowns and, and the way people in the West uh, have just completely surrendered their rights to these unelected medical officials, taking their word as the word of God, even though their story keeps changing and they clearly don't know what they're talking about half the time. 
Um, that is really an interesting, an interesting thing. As far as the Russian reaction, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, could you just give us an example of, of them changing their orders, uh, as, as you stated, that, that really that stood out for you? Oh, well, you know, first they say that uh, masks are fairly useless, which is in fact the case, because a, a virus particle is uh, about a hundredth the size of a pore in a typical medical mask. Uh, they're carried by aerosols and aerosols and smoke and things like that go straight through those masks. So it's trivial to demonstrate that the masks are worthless. But first they said that the masks are not necessary unless you're severely ill. Uh, then they said everybody must wear a mask at some point. Uh, uh, Fauci, who, who is basically trolling the entire world, said that you should wear uh, several masks on top of each other, which is really hilarious. Uh, some people in some countries claimed, like in Austria, they claimed that no, don't wear masks, wear a respirator, not realizing that the respirator is something with a valve that filters air only on the inhale but doesn't filter on the exhale. So making a sick person wear a respirator is like nothing, nothing at all, not helpful the least. Some people made children wear masks, even though children are known not to A, suffer from this virus or B, spread it. Um, all sorts of ridiculousness. And then of course, the, the origin of the virus, you know, what a, what a soap opera. First, they say that it came from bats, then it, then, uh, and anybody who said that, well, it, this this looks this virus looks like a, a bad mistake made at a, a laboratory doing really evil research financed by Americans in China. Uh, Americans have all these quote unquote bioterror labs scattered all over the planet doing God knows what. Um, and uh, anybody who voiced the idea that this was basically a, a human made virus was was shunned and banned. Uh, except now that the story is changing and it's turning out that that's actually quite, quite a plausible story that's been known all along and been, has been hushed up. Okay. In the middle of all of this, Russia is basically treating this as a bioterror, biowarfare drill, preparing for the real thing, preparing its population for the real thing, uh, getting back, uh, the, the, infectious disease hospitals and clinics that existed during the Soviet era, but uh, that were dismantled during the 90s. Now, all of that infrastructure is getting put together and updated. Uh, so Russia is totally prepared against a serious bioterror attack unleashed by the Pentagon, which is why the Pentagon has, has built all of these bioterror labs all, all around the world. Um, and has been caught red-handed uh, collecting DNA from, say, Russian citizens to better target them in case of a bioterror attack. The Russians are now prepared for it. They now have infrastructure in place that will allow even a, a new pathogen to become very quickly detectable at places like uh, airports and, and train stations, bus terminals. Um, so they did all of that. As far as vaccines, the Russians have by far the best vaccine called Sputnik V. Uh, they have a total of four different vaccines targeting different people. All of these are traditional vaccines put together using traditional methods where only a very small piece 
of the vaccine uh, depends on the coronavirus itself. The rest of it is basically uh, stock equipment as far as vaccine technology goes. There's nothing really drastically different about the, these vaccines than a lot of the other vaccines that the Russians have produced successfully, such as the Ebola vaccine, for instance. Uh, they're, they're also working on a vaccine um, for HIV. Um, so the Russians are extremely successful in developing vaccines. Uh, the Sputnik V vaccine has been uh, approved for use in 60 countries. Several countries have been licensed to produce Sputnik V locally, such as India, and are being allowed to export with what they produce as well. So Russia is the major supplier of coronavirus vaccine to the entire world. Uh, all of this rather inexpensively. The Russians have the choice, absolutely voluntary, but they have the choice of being vaccinated in Russia, uh, a, a choice of four, four different vaccines, depending on the situation, um, very rigorous testing, um, and uh, they're making it, this available to all of the Russian citizens and residents, free of charge, completely free. As far as the rest of the world, uh, the rates are uh, very, very competitive com compared to what the West is willing to offer. The CDC statistics uh, uh, saying reporting about uh, 5,000 deaths since the beginning of, or since December when it launched. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if these, uh, uh, the, the, the vaccine statistics from Sputnik V is in any way, does it resemble that at all, or is it a little bit more safe? Uh, it seems to be perfectly safe. Um, uh, the only issue is some people don't develop immunity as a result. People with uh, weakened immune systems to begin with, people who've gone through chemo, for instance, or people who've had organ transplants, uh, they don't really get uh, the benefit of being immunized because their immune systems are, are suppressed or faulty or, um, uh, but, but uh, as far as everyone else, uh, the, the first people to get immunized in Russia were members of the government and the armed forces and the medical community. So if anything went wrong there, they would know about it. They would be the first to know about it. The compli complications had to do with very mild flu-like symptoms that persisted for perhaps a day or two. So uh, I know that uh, when they developed this, uh, or when this uh, vaccine, the, the virus came out, um, there was uh, in advance, there were about three different tests or, or drills, you know, there was clade X, there was crimson contagion, and there was event 201, you know, just within the, the year previous that uh, indicated, you know, just what they would do in case of a major viral breakout. Uh, and, and typically, like from my own experience, when, whenever the United States plans to do something, they always have some sort of a drill uh, in advance. So, you know, here there are three drills in, in just the past year. Um, so I figure you're either a, a conspiracy theorist or a coincidence theorist when it comes to uh, you know, deciding you know, whether or not this was a, an act of, of, uh, of a nation or whether it was just an accident of, of nature. So I'm wondering if you could add to that anything more. And I mean, there's the recent lab leak 
which, uh, which is now being revisited as, a, as the means by which it was, this virus was able to spread. And I'm wondering if you can add anything else to that so that uh, any coincidences say that would lead people to believe that, well, maybe, maybe there was some other reasons why this virus had to be, have been a, a work of uh, United States or, or some other entity as opposed to an accident of nature. Well, I don't have any proof for a smoking gun or anything like that, but in terms of putting together a nice story, it goes like this. Uh, the United States, uh, having tried uh, economic warfare against China and having tried to uh, start weapons programs to compete with Russia, realized that this is going nowhere. And they also realized that the big asset that they haven't tried using yet was these bioterror labs they've built in places like Wuhan, China, uh, that were making very, very dangerous uh, human-made pathogens by mixing various uh, uh, existing pathogens together in new ways. Uh, uh, and uh, so they decided that uh, uh, in, their, in their infinite wisdom, they, they decided that, well, of course, the West and the United States have top-notch medical systems that would be able to deal with this without any problem at all. Whereas China and Russia being stupid and backward would just fall over and keel over and would no longer present a risk and would come begging the West for vaccines and medicines. Okay, so what they did is uh, construct a boomerang with which they whacked themselves upside the head because it turned out that Russia and China had top-notch medical systems that not only dealt with this uh, contagion, uh, which wasn't all that serious actually, uh, but used this as an opportunity to tune up the, their entire bioterror defense systems so that now they have pretty much negated uh, whatever Pentagon has brewing in their bioterror labs. On the other hand, medical systems in, in the West uh, once again demonstrated that they don't exist. There are no medical systems in the West. They're commercially provided medical services. And, one, and, and they're optimized based on people's ability to pay, not on how many people are out there sick. So what they did is promptly keel over and a lot of people who should have uh, basically been treated and released ended up dying because they were neglected. And as far as developing vaccines, uh, it, it basically showed what we knew all along that, you know, Russia and China uh, have uh, medical systems in place to develop vaccines, uh, medical industries that serve the public good. Whereas in the West, you just have private companies that cannot be dissuaded from trying to make money off of any kind of disaster. In fact, they love disasters because it makes them even richer. So basically, they, they used this opportunity to A, enrich themselves, and B, to experiment on uh, a whole bunch of human guinea pigs uh, without any liability whatsoever. What a wonderful thing for them. What a, what a wonderful present. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the coronavirus was very useful as a test to see who's real and who's not. 
to see who can stand up to the challenge and, and who just falls over. What about the, uh, they're, they're saying that the, the great reset being brought forward is, is pretty much where this is going, where they, uh, there was this massive uh, uh, virus and then uh, there was so much, we, we had to develop like completely change the way we do our, our business and, and they've had a whole bunch of stuff on the, uh, on, on the listed in the book, which indicate how, how we're gonna change things now. So we're, we're looking, they say, at a complete reset of everything that, uh, you know, from, you know, the way we monitor and, and so on. So I wanted to get some thoughts from you about that. I mean, is that, is that just a, a side thing? Is this, uh, or is this maybe at the root of what they were trying to do in the first place? Or did they just jump in the sort of, uh, in a kind of, uh, well, I'll jump on that bandwagon, so to speak. Well, the, the Great Reset and the, and the brilliant idea hatched by Klaus Schwab, who's, who's uh, uh, this uh, octogenarian um, kind of Bond villain type. Um, he, um, you know, he thought that he could use the coronavirus to push through his uh, uh, Great Reset ideas that he's been nurturing for quite a while now. And he got absolutely no traction at all. The whole thing is dead in the water, not happening. Uh, I'm surprised people are still talking about it. One of your articles recently talked about the virus actually changing uh, how people, uh, you know, how they use fossil fuels because the fossil fuel level, uh, or, or you say, is actually in a decline now, or rather, there was a, there's something called peak oil, and that we are in, enjoying a bit of a rise due to fracking, right? But that level is going to be somewhat finite, and then we're going to go into decline. It just so happens that uh, people's behavior is changing. They're not used getting on a, a plane as often as they used to, you know, and they're not, they're they're, they're locked at home. So uh, there's not the same kind of usage of this. So, so could you maybe talk about that, that idea? Because I think it's a very interesting one and it'll lead us into the whole issue of the, uh, you know, the decline of the United States as a, as, a, as a country. Well, the comedy of errors as far as oil goes like this. They invested a trillion in, in uh, fracking uh, only made uh, maybe 700 billion worth of revenue from it. Uh, all of the all of the investment turned out to be worthless, most of it. Uh, most of the good spots have been drilled out already. Um, the the what, what's left is really just the dregs of the dregs. Uh, there isn't any way to raise the money to continue doing this. Um, the Oil prices never really went up high enough to make fracking pay for itself. Uh, production rates are dropping. In the meantime, convinced that this is going to save them, the Americans have been playing fast and loose with Venezuela, cutting themselves off from Venezuelan oil, um, uh, being very confrontational and pro-Israeli when it comes to Iran, cutting themselves off from Iranian oil, so China is getting all of it. Um, 
and are now reduced to buying oil from Russia because the little oil that they have still coming from fracking is no good for making diesel. It's too light. Uh, so they need to mix, mix it. They need to, uh, to combine it with heavier crudes. Venezuelan crude served them well, but is no longer available. So now the only source they have left is Russian oil, the Urals brand. And so they're abjectly dependent on the Russians. Now, as far as uh, making do with a smaller supply of crude oil of whatever source, they have to basically reduce consumption symmetrically. So uh, about half of each barrel is turned into uh, gasoline and the rest is turned into a bunch of actually useful things such as diesel and bunker fuel and jet fuel. And, and so they have to balance demand destruction. So they, they uh, basically uh, get everybody working remotely so nobody commute, commutes, that cuts down on gasoline consumption. Um, and then they shut down the tourist industry, so that shuts down on the diesel consumption. And uh, then uh, uh, they, they, they have to do something about freight rates, freight rates but they, they have trouble dealing with that. So there are a lot of dislocations. So uh, you, you see the dislocations not in the carefully managed uh, fuels market, because um, Basically, if, if the prices for gasoline and, um, you know, go up too high, you, you have riots. And if the prices for, for diesel go up too high, a lot of very necessary uh, activities shut down. Uh, deliveries stop, food deliveries stop, uh, crops don't get planted, etc. So they have to control those things carefully. But what they don't control are all of the petrochemical feedstock dependent industries. So the price of epoxy, for instance, has absolutely gone through the roof. And if you carefully look at all of these other um, petrochemical derived uh, uh, products, of which there are many, um, the, the imbalances that have presented themselves already have driven up uh, inflation uh, to, to a huge extent doubling and tripling in prices in very short periods of time, which basically probably leads us to the next subject, which is hyperinflation. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, the, the fact is that there's been uh, a lot of uh, hyperinflation and there's a lot of uh, different levels in which the United States is simply unable to, to pay their bets, their, their debts. They, uh, they rely increasingly on the uh, that 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 uh, that bank, uh, the the ones that creates uh, money, but they the Federal Reserve. Yeah, the Federal Reserve. Thank you. Uh, and and the the Americans. I mean, I I don't imagine that uh, any amount of uh, it's so high that any amount of money that uh, the United States could pay in taxes is just not up to it. They're increasingly losing their ability to produce their own goods, and yet they still have the ability to collect, collect them from abroad, at least for now. But it, it seems as if, I mean, according to your own analysis, uh, like way back in 2006, I mean, America was in decline, and I, I think we're starting to, to see the final conclusion. Interesting thing, however, that I, I didn't foresee at that time is how it seems to have 
cut right through the the, the very fabric of America itself. I mean, like like you said, uh, I, I guess around the the, the New Year's Day uh, episode, they they seem to be they, they're not necessarily waging a war abroad; they're waging it in itself, a, a civil war. You know, uh, so I, I'm wondering. Uh, Maybe you, you, you could sort of, I mean, at what point did it, was it apparent to you that that uh, civil or that uh, street of uh, dislocation could be the center on which the United States collapses? And, and how, how could it ever, uh, I don't know if it's going to actually be a, a structural break or not, but, you know, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on how that, that this new form or this form of of collapse uh, differs from maybe what you foresaw 15 years ago? Well, um, I think that, you know, the pattern of uh, Americans turning on each other is to be expected because this is a predatory nation. It started out that way. If you, if you look at what they did to the, the Native Americans, uh, if, if you look at what they did to the slaves, by the way, the United States is still a, a slaving economy. It's just that the slaves, uh, in accordance with the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, work in jails. You have to first uh, convict them of a, a crime before making use of them as slaves. It's a bit of a legal nicety. But anyway, this is a country that has invaded multiple other countries, always for money, always for economic advantage, um, uh, and uh, never really in self-defense. Um, it, it has uh, overthrown governments all over the place. It has bombed several countries into, basically into oblivion for standing up to them. So Gaddafi said that he won't take uh, dollars for oil and got bombed out of existence. And then, um, and be before that, Saddam Hussein did the same thing, got bombed out of existence. Um, Syria tried to do the same thing. And if Russians didn't come to its res rescue, that would be a, a non-country at this point. So that's all to basically threaten people by, by towing the line and accepting worthless printed American dollars uh, allowing the United States to export inflation while importing, um, importing whatever it, it wants at whatever prices it wants. Um, and, and this has come to an end because the latest country to say it doesn't really want to take dollars for oil is Russia. And bombing Russia out of existence is not on the menu. Okay. So as a result of that, as a result of that, the Americans being predatory, a predatory race, if you will, uh, can't really go out and hunt abroad. So they have turned to hunting at home and are turning on each other because basically uh, not everybody is going to get a piece of the pie anymore. And uh, it, there's going to be a, a bit of a war to figure out who will, who will get the, the last piece. Yeah. And I guess the United States is, is not, I mean, Russia's, or rather the Soviet Union went through this already, but Russia, uh, I guess they're probably a little bit better off than the United States in terms of, you know, how they're going to survive collapse and, and then looking ahead. Um, 
I, I see we only have a couple of minutes left, uh, Dimitri, as I predicted it would our, that our time will fly, but maybe you'd like to say a little bit about your uh, recent publication. Uh, it's Your website is cluborloff.blogspot.com and you, you printed all of these uh, essays, which you print, you know, some of which are, are going into the, uh, the private site, I guess, uh, but they're in a book and they're available uh, right now. Did, did you, can you maybe say a little bit about how they're different from, say, previous collections of, uh, of essays? Maybe what, what stands out, what will stand out for uh, viewers as they, they move forward? What, what is in the Arctic uh, fox coming? Well, the Arctic fox is a euphemism for collapse, first of all, just to, to lift the veil a little bit. Um, it, it's a, basically, when things go really badly, people tend to start cursing a lot, or praying, um, or both. Um, but um, obscenity, you know, is, is, is very nice, but uh, people tend to kind of get around it by using euphemisms. As explained in my book, The Arctic Fox is um, a euphemism for uh, holy shit, we're completely fucked. Which is, I believe, what Americans should be saying to themselves at this point. So the Arctic Fox is there to help them to understand what they're going through. They're going through a death and rebirth experience. The rebirth will be painful. Birth generally is. Not everybody will be naked, will, will make it. But there's always hope. But whereas before I, 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 was, I spoke about collapse in, in, in the sense of something that is in the future, now, from now on, uh, I can definitely see and map it out basically as an ongoing process. Okay. Well, Dimitri, I'm afraid I have to close it there, but uh, I want to thank you for your, uh, your insights. They're always like far in a way, you know, beyond anything anybody's, I mean, whether you agree or disagree, uh, you, you're not, a, very few people these days can explain themselves as, as intelligently as yourself and also in ways that are completely off everybody's radar screen. So thank you so much for, uh, for participating in the lecture today. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dmitry Orlov, a, a Russian-American writer and a blogger and uh, he is uh, currently located in Moscow. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.